Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello, everyone. This is, and just like that, The Writer's Room, the official companion podcast from HBO Max and Pineapple Street Studios. I'm Michael Patrick King, executive producer, writer, and director of And Just Like That. And here with me, as always, we have executive producer and writer Julie Rottenberg. Hi, happy to be back here with you guys. And executive producer and writer Eliza Zaritsky. Hey, hey, hey. And joining us today for the very first time in the podcast writing room, but for the millionth time in the actual writing room, Kelly Goff. Hi. So I called my friend Susan Faleshill who is a brilliant television writer, and she said, you've got to get Kelly. Kelly is bright, she's stunningly smart, and has a million ideas. Uh, so, of course, I got Kelly's stuff. She's a playwright, and she writes television. And I read her plays, and they had such an amazing ability to contain tension that then goes into comedy that I was instantly hooked. So I called Kelly up and asked her to do the show. Now, Kelly didn't let us know that she was a super fan of Sex and the City. <laughs> really? She didn't let you know in no, the No, no, first... she played it very oh, stealth, very really? cool, very Kelly. I don't know if it was an intentionally covert operation. <laughs> I will say, is, will anyone believe me that it didn't come up in the first interview? <laughs> I believe you. Because we talked about what we were going to do with the show and how we were bringing in new writers to flesh out the new characters as well as the bonus track was that Kelly had a very strong connection to the characters from Sex and the City. And an encyclopedic memory <laughs> for dialogue from episodes from every single season. Kelly would quote back to us things in our own episodes that we did not remember. Well, I will say that in my defense that it wasn't just that I was preventing you from knowing that you were marrying your stalker, Michael. <laughs> Although that was part of what was going on. I figured you probably shouldn't drop that in the first date. But the other thing that was going on is I think I was in such shock that you took this meeting with me. I was so excited. Like it's my, I mean, my mother doesn't really know much about modern day Hollywood post like Matlock episodes. She doesn't really know anything. <laughs> Maybe Murder, She Wrote. I don't remember which one went off first. But she even was so excited for me when I said, Mom, you're never going to believe this. The man who runs Sex in the City is taking a meeting with me. And it was the only meeting where she was like, how'd the meeting go? And so I was so excited. She was so excited that I actually just thought, I'm just going to enjoy this meeting. 
I think I probably talked less in that meeting than I've talked since I've known you because I just was so in so much shock and awe. And I figured, look, if nothing else, I took this exciting meeting and I can't believe the man who won all these Emmys for Sex and the City said that he thinks I'm a good writer and he likes my plays. And that was going to be enough for me. It really Mm -hmm. was. Well, it wasn't going to be enough for me (laughs) because within five minutes, I was like, okay, I was auditioning. And just like that, the idea to Kelly to make sure that she would come and join us. And just like that, I couldn't believe I was part of the Sex and the City family. The other great bonus, you know, all of a sudden, I don't know, day 40 in the writing room, she's like, oh, by the way, I have a vintage clothing collection. Right. Yes. I, I collect oh vintage God. clothing. I'm, I have couture. I have another apartment that I keep as an office, wink, wink, closet. She became more and more Carrie. Like she's a very interesting combination <laughs> of Carrie and Charlotte. Charlotte, yeah. It's true, you're right. That's and really has a funny. great great affinity for Charlotte, which is kind of the thrust for Kelly's episode. Mm -hmm. Um, The episode number four, entitled Some of My Best Friends, by the way, there were so many other titles. Yes. The first title that Kelly came up with was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? (laughs) And I personally said to Kelly, your script is so good, why reference another piece? Mm. So it finally became Some of My Best Friends because in the episode... Well, if you haven't seen the episode, again, please stop listening. Go watch them because it only pays off if you're up to date. So please right now, if you haven't seen the episodes, go watch them. Everybody else who's seen them, first of all, thank you. And secondly, let me just say that in this episode, we wanted to design a show where each of the new characters met up with some of the original characters. And we wanted to deepen the characters we brought in. And the first storyline that we wanted to talk about was Charlotte and the new character, LTW, Lisa Todd Wexley. And we wanted to sort of experience, go right into the hot-button topic of why they have not ever communicated to their black friends. If they have black friends, if Charlotte has black friends— what it feels for someone to try to be in the current moment and try to stay current and being surprised that they're not really where they should be. Well, I did say to Cynthia Nixon that um, as an expert on all things sex in the city, this is definitively the blackest episode in the history of the franchise. Mm -hmm. And I say that with um, great pride. You know, the elephant in the room, you know, has been some of the criticism that I, I, it's certainly not a secret to to all of us here about diversity in the previous iteration of the series. But one of the things I've always been fairly candid about is that, you know, our society, even today, although much less so than it was, you know, 50 years ago, but even today, we're still a fairly segregated society in our personal lives. And one of the things that I think is fascinating, I would say, particularly about our, our room is that for a number of us, our lives, our personal lives don't look like that, right? Like, I don't want to speak for some of the other writers who aren't here, but all of us have kind of compared notes and whether it comes to our, it's our romantic relationships or our closest circle of friends. And certainly I will speak for myself and say that the the people I am closest to in this world, 
they are a, a total rainbow in terms of diversity and not just in terms of race, but in terms of religion and sexual orientation. Um, and that is the world we live in today. But that's not everyone's world, right? That's not everyone's world. And I just wanted to, to emphasize that. And so one of the conversations I thought we wanted to have on the show is it's not just, okay, you know, why wasn't Sex and the City more diverse? Why aren't all Americans more diverse in their personal lives? And if you are someone who is actually genuinely interested in diversifying in your personal life, how do you go about doing that, right? Because that's one of the, the awkward things about adulthood is it's actually not as easy to make friends as it is when you're living in a college dorm, when you're playing on a playground in elementary school. And so that's really what the episode became about. Like a lot of my favorite Sex and the City episodes, less about the, the big you know, societal issue and more about how that looks on a day-to-day -day life and the humor that comes with all of the big issues and how they look in, our, in the small ways in our day-to-day -day lives, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this what became, right? Is Charlotte... York McDougal, Golden Blatt <laughs> on the playground of adulthood, trying to make a really, really good friend. Mm -hmm. And I think what was the scariest thing, I'll speak for myself, but for this iteration of the show, was how do we let the characters talk about it? Like, I, I know that I was raised a long time ago to <laughs> act as if you know, color didn't exist. And so it wouldn't be in good taste to speak to a new friend's race. And now we're learning that we have to have these uncomfortable conversations. So how how do we let those uncomfortable conversations happen? And I feel like, Kelly, you were so instrumental in helping us all have the uncomfortable conversations. But also the daringness of it. And it wasn't just a conversation. We wanted to take the show from some sort of a think piece to a personal expression with a just heightened sense of the trap, the comedy trap that Charlotte could find herself in. And you were fearless about going, no, 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 no. <laughs> she, we, she can't find a friend. And we need to underline the comedy of the obstacle of somebody who thinks they're reading every book possible but still can't find a black girlfriend to come on a two days notice to a dinner party. Well, also the other thing we wanted to have fun with, which I think this is certainly not just limited to this episode, but it's the idea of, of the thing that all of us, I think, have experienced and probably have a little fatigue of, right? Which is the people who have read every book, whether it's Miranda or whether it's Charlotte, and really are are trying really hard. And maybe they're trying so hard that they're actually missing the big picture of how to get it right in life. And I think a lot of us are kind of feeling that um, right now. And so we wanted to really have fun with that. And I, and I feel like that's really where we get to the end of the episode, right? Which is Charlotte was so focused on kind of checking the boxes of, in the same way, I, I think what I compared it to as the Sex and the City super fan that I am, to when Charlotte decided she wanted to convert to Judaism in the original series. And it's like, I am going to get this right if it kills me. And there are people who feel that way about race. But unfortunately, as we know in our society, it doesn't really work like that. There's not really a merit badge that's like, you nailed race today, <laughs> right? But Charlotte's the kind of person who wants the merit badge. So she's like, I, I, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And there is innate humor in saying that, you know, that the 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 earnestness and I'm going to get an A plus on on making black friends 
and, you know, realizing like, wait, was there not even a test? I don't understand what's happening, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's a good student. Everyone's trying to be a good student. And this is really about walking the walk rather than just talking the talk. And like all the good Sex and the City stories, it's really important to not just go out on a limb, but that limb needs to crack. And I was so excited to tackle what, for us in the writer's room, we felt very comfortable talking about these really hard issues. And I feel like, as a white person, I was excited to have the white person fuck up and stumble and make a horrible faux pas. And I love that Kristen was so game, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, we all felt like we needed to take this next step, even if it felt a little dangerous. Yeah, I mean, in the writing room is one thing. On the page and handing the script out is a whole other journey. And I always felt enormously grounded by Kelly's constant belief that this belonged in the world. There were two things specifically in this episode. And the first thing was LTW's daughter Gabrielle speaking French. And the second thing was Kelly's emotional reaction to a room full of black millionaires. Part of why those images were so important to me is because one of the things I was really excited about when you talked about some of these new characters, Michael, is having the opportunity to show diversity within diversity. Meaning that a lot of shows, they present you know, the one Black character who then has to represent every Black person in the history of the universe. Um, And so they end up having to embody sort of this just random hodgepodge of stereotypes or cliches or whatever it was that a particular network felt they wanted to say to Black audiences or to Latinx audiences or to other diverse audiences. And so what I was so excited about is that particularly by having the opportunity um, presented through LTW and Naya is that we would get to show a diversity of Black womanhood. That's, that's a really rare opportunity and frankly a gift. And part of why I was excited about that is not just for white audiences to see that, but because I'm someone who is not from a particularly privileged background. And so, frankly, when I got to New York and I met people like Susan Fales Hill, I was in awe. I mean, I, my mother has said this about Susan, who was literally just featured with her beautiful daughter in a layout in editorial in Town and Country magazine. My mother said to me, I never knew Black Americans like this existed. She really didn't. And I didn't either until I got here. So for me, it was so eye-opening and aspirational to meet women like Susan who are beautiful when are on the best dress list and speak multiple languages and their children speak multiple languages. And I thought, how aspirational could that be for other people to actually see that on screen? Because it's not just Susan. There, there is a whole world of Black Americans like that that simply was unfamiliar to someone like me. Um, you know, my family, I'm very proud to say they were farmers and they picked cotton. And so I felt like, why hadn't I seen this imagery on television? I think the closest we'd really ever come is perhaps Whitley Gilbert on A Different World. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Susan was the showrunner on Different World, right? So I felt it was it was very important to have a scene that opened up that world to our audience. And it, and it was something that was deeply important to me. And I was so glad that it was important to you, too. Let's talk about art 
black yeah. art. Oh, Kelly, yes, yeah. you brought it single handedly uh, captained that ship and literally saw it to completion. Can you talk about the collection that LTW has in her fabulous aspirational penthouse apartment and how we got there? First of all, a lot of the fabulous, amazing, um, aspirational Black Dioquers I've met, a lot of them collect some of the most important aspirational Black art and Black artists currently working. And so one of the things that we talked about, right, is is LTW and Charlotte both kind of being uh, veterans of the gala circuit here in New York. And the Studio Museum in Harlem Gala is kind of the fabulous Black prom of the fabulous Black art set here in New York. And so it, there was no doubt in my mind that LTW and her husband Herbert would be part of that world. Um, and I have friends, uh, Crystal McCrary and her husband Ray are, are big collectors in that world. And so I reached out to the head of the Studio Museum in Harlem, Thelma Golden, and said, look, I, I want to create this scene, um, the, this dinner party scene where they're discussing Black art what do you think? And she said, I think it's fabulous. And I think you should call Raquel Chevremont. Called Raquel, who is literally like the most incredible curator for moments like these and told her the vision and she delivered and then some in every possible way and got us the most extraordinary art beyond my wildest dreams. And she got us everything from Barclay Hendricks, Deborah Roberts, Carrie Mae Weems. Um, and then just on a personal note, Gordon Parks is one of my favorite photographers. He's one of the most important photographers of the civil rights movement. And she actually got his foundation to loan us an original for our shoot. And I have to tell you, Michael, that literally um, watching um, a Black crew member hang that portrait was one of the proudest days of my writing career. I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I just kept staring at it, um, that we have that piece of art in our episode that Charlotte and Harry walked past it and that there's a whole conversation at a dinner party about one of the most important photographs of the civil rights movement. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I mean, it's like it's a way of showing people that we're really trying to represent something realistic in a fantastical situation. The other big moment in that episode at the dinner party before the art discovery Mm. that Charlotte is the moment where Charlotte walks in. This is a hot button and mistakes um, Shauna for Gwen, which is another black woman that she knows in the Upper East Side school system. And, Never happens. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and it, it made people very nervous. It made people very nervous. And it was a, 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 the last rewrite in the script is because Kelly – and all of us, Samantha, Kelly, Rechna, Julie, and Elisa, were like, well, Charlotte can't walk in and just be the know-it-all. 
Because right. we've just done an episode about White Savior. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> especially after she's berating Harry to be perfect. So everybody started to panic about the mistaken identity comedy beat, which is the most important thing for all of us. And Kelly was like, oh, yeah. And actually in editing, people were worried. And I called – none of the writers, by the way. I called up uh, Kelly and I said, Kelly, I'm in the editing room. Tell me again why Charlotte mistaking Sasha for Gwen – is important. So first of all, this has happened so many times. And I have to tell you that what's really hilarious is we actually did the really G-rated nice version of this because we could have gone so much further. I mean, I think I've told you, I mean, Susan once had a, a, a hilarious incident, hilariously awful, that we still reference because a woman was so invested when she realized she'd confused her for another Black woman that she insisted Susan's own daughter went to a different school. <laughs> She literally yeah, was go so, in. she they was like, I'm, right. I, I'm not down. letting this go. Are you sure your daughter does not go? Are you 100% sure? Wow. Yeah, people double down, mm-hmm. especially when they want to be perfect. Yeah, and I was going to say, Michael, I actually think the reason this one more than anything else probably uh, pushed so many buttons is it's because the one probably most people are guilty of, right? People who read the right books, donate to the right causes, vote for the right candidates have still mixed up people of the same race. And that's why it makes people so deeply uncomfortable. Now, I hope what we succeeded in doing is that if you mix up two minorities, that doesn't negate all of the great things you have done. Just own it and keep it moving, you know? And I, I think the, I think what actually would have been the bigger crime is if we had, you know, caved and and removed it as if it's something not worthy of discussion, because that's exactly the kind of stuff I think we're here to discuss, if not now, when? After the big uh, embarrassment and uh, heroic effort that Charlotte makes, we wanted one more scene at the very end where LTW thanks Charlotte for being such a good friend and that Charlotte really does want to be a good friend, which is what this episode is all about. It's about how we go deeper in friendships. And Charlotte actually says to her, well, I hope so, but. And then they have a very brief conversation where they tell, where Charlotte tells her the truth. And LTW's response is, good luck with trying to be perfect in this world. And then she says, I was nervous that you and Harry would be uncomfortable. So what we're trying to do is show a balance of social and personal. So now we want to jump to another also explosive, complicated, sticky topic, which is the topic of motherhood, the question of whether we want to become mothers, what that will take away from the rest of our lives. And we realized to have Naya and Miranda having this hard complicated conversation was a way for us to put out in the world what very often I think people don't talk about, which is a real ambivalence around becoming a parent. And ambivalence about motherhood even after one's crossed that threshold. I would say ambivalence with a side of torture <laughs> because this, <laughs> because society isn't ambivalent. Society is, you should be, you're a woman, you should yes. be a mother. And what was... It's the greatest gift. What, yeah. Which was interesting for Kelly is that she wanted very strongly to show a black woman who is successful, who felt coached into being a person who needs to have children. 
you know, this was probably the the most, um, this is the storyline that I felt probably the greatest discomfort around mm-hmm. um, and the most evolution around, mainly because I'm someone who has chosen not to have children and I decided that a long time ago. And I felt very protective of the show and the characters and wanted to make sure that I was, felt I was adequately, you know, speaking to the needs and attitudes and perspectives of our audience. And so I wanted to make sure that Naya's journey wasn't paralleling mine from a selfish place. And so um, I was probably a little overprotective of her story in that sense, but I was so grateful that actually it was the mothers in the room and particularly um, the two of you, Elise and Julie, and also Karen Pittman and Cynthia Nixon, who were also mothers, who said that there there isn't enough voice given to all sides of the conversation before a lot of women have children. Um, and so I thought that's what kind of became um, our North Star in telling the story is, is telling it in such a way that people have an, and women feel that they have an informed decision. Um, and Michael so accurately put it, society, I think, gives pretty clear voice to the, the side of, have children, here are all the reasons you should, and it is going to be the best, most amazingly life-changing, wonderful experience ever. And I think the thing that was really revolutionary about what I felt we were able to do is to have mothers say, I love my kids, but not so fast. Mm -hmm. And that felt like the radical thing, to break out of this script that (laughs) somehow got to everyone that you the only answer to should I have kids is yes. When in doubt, yes, yes. you will regret it if, if you, you don't. don't. And we retooled that scene also many, many, many times, even after the table read, to find the right balance. Because we also didn't want Miranda to say, you know, don't do it, you'll regret it. But it, it's it's being able to say both things and, and and the fact that both are actually true it's wonderful and it's really hard and to not oversimplify and pile on to your friend well the interesting thing for me is that each of the characters that you're familiar with is hooking up with somebody else with issues that they've sort of dealt with with mm-hmm. charlotte it was mother-in-law and art mm-hmm. with miranda everybody knows talk about ambivalent Miranda almost had an abortion Mm -hmm. and then decided spontaneously to not have an abortion Mm -hmm. and had an enormous struggle in Sex and the City with her work life versus her mother life and her guilt Mm -hmm. to the point where she put Brady's baby pictures on a mo— or no, her face on Brady's baby mobile and (laughs) hang it over her crib because she had to go to work. So for Naya, who's very successful, more successful than Miranda in terms of free-thinking— Powerful. And happily married, really happily married with, you know, yeah. her husband, Andre Rashad. And you, Kelly, had such a great point of view of the particular pressure that happily married black couples have mm. to procreate. Yeah, it's funny because I've written a lot of pieces for a lot of publications as a journalist, and I'd say the the time that I was probably most overwhelmed with response was when I say I came out of the closet as someone who was choosing not to have children because I had been a journalist and I'd been on air for a while. And one of the things I'd been frankly told by people who care about me when I was on air was not to ever tell anyone I I didn't want children. 
because I was told there was such a stigma. And this was maybe like seven years ago, seven mm-hmm. to 10 years ago, I was told this. There was such a stigma for, for women who don't want children. And particularly if you're trying to connect with, with audiences filled with women, um, there's a stigma. And then particularly if you're Black and you kind of meet the right Black guy, it sort of seemed like you found the unicorn. Look, you found Black love and you're, you're middle class or upper middle class. How could you not mm-hmm. want to have children? And as I said in this piece that I did for Elle at the time, I mean, that's, first of all, that's really like a f- promoting a form of eugenics, right? Like you're Black, you're happy, you're middle class, have kids, have babies. That's what you should do. But, you know, I also sort of get it to a certain degree that people are like society's feeding us all these messages. Don't you want to be part of this whole American dream of the Black family? But there is a measure of added pressure. And Samantha, who is also Black on the other writers, we talked about this. We come from very different backgrounds. We both talked about this. And so I think that was something that was also revolutionary Mm -hmm. is to show on screen that you can have two Black people blissfully in love, no Black drama, no Black trauma. And the only conflict is, do we have a responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to the quote, greater societal good to have children and raise this idyllic Black American family? Or is it okay to have a responsibility to myself? And story-wise, we helped that along by having uh, Naya at a certain age where she needs IVF. So it's not an easy choice to keep going. It's a difficult one. And it also is a, if you know the series, Sex and the City and the movies, you know there's a doorway there. As soon as Miranda hears IVF, she immediately responds with a knowledge of Charlotte's experience And then you immediately subliminally get dragged to Charlotte, who always wanted kids and worked so hard to have them. In the movie, she's hiding in a pantry. So it's it's an interesting um, power pellet of a scene because not only are we expressing both career versus mother, we're actually shining a light on Miranda's ambiguousness, Mm -hmm. but also her regret which is mm-hmm. so shocking. So to have Miranda actually express to Naya the seesaw. The road not taken for her. Yeah, yeah, the road not taken for her. It's a very full scene, and it is sort of a scene that could only exist if Miranda hadn't beaten up Chucky on the subway. Because <laughs> right. Now they've bonded. Because yes. that— that experience has pushed them through archetypes, teacher-student. And now what I love about the scene is the teacher is the student about motherhood and the student is the teacher about motherhood. But there's no lesson plan because what Miranda says is, it's fucking hard. And I just wanted to be very clear, this scene could not have been written without Julian and Lisa's expertise, input. I would say they're balls to actually <laughs> sit down and actually have... A, a burning desire to get both sides of their experiences yeah. out into the world, which is kind of what we always did on Sex and the City. So then another burning desire was to look at where all these characters are now. The new characters you're just meeting, suddenly their lives are open mm-hmm. for discussion. And then the familiar characters like Miranda, who in this episode comes to a kind of a, a, I would say, like an awakening where the scales fall from her eyes through Che's Mm -hmm. comedy performance. Mm -hmm. And that's another place that I think the show steps into an area that most shows wouldn't, which is 
Che and the comedy from the last episode. Mm -hmm. Che and the comedy opens it up to even more, and you can see Miranda just subtly changing how she thinks about everything in this episode. And also, I remember the Miranda-Naya scene, this question of have we earned them being so honest with each other when they barely know each other, and then we decided sometimes that's the person you can be the most honest with is I have had some really deep conversations with people I'm not that close with because there's almost a safety in less intimacy. Right. And no judgment. Yeah. And sometimes there are topics that are sort of super highways. I I find as a woman, like I had a colicky, really colicky second baby. And I found myself in very deep, sudden, close friendships with other women who had had colicky babies. I was like, I need to hear everything about your experience. And we were suddenly sharing the most intimate details. And I think that's you know, we wanted m- this motherhood conversation to be kind of a super highway between them. But I will also say, Kelly, I credit you a lot with, you know, when we first started out this series and we w- we knew we had these people we wanted to introduce into all of the characters' lives, but we didn't know exactly how they would start. And we didn't want to start the series with look who became close friends in the 11 years since you've seen them. So we (laughs) wanted to earn each new bond. And you were very instrumental in what a lot of viewers seem to feel was a cringy, you know, jumping off point between Miranda and Naya in the classroom. It's some of my favorite stuff. And I feel like you were very instrumental in showing what was the best you know, most organic way for a professor and a student to kind of get off on the wrong foot. Right, and then we moved it into the emotional. Yes. Um, Of course, when you talk about this superhighway that you had with colicky mothers and that Miranda has with Naya, there's also a different type of friendship, enter SEMA, which Mm -hmm. is where you're drawn to someone that has no connection to your life. All of a sudden, a stranger... Like Julie said, you meet a stranger. And it was very important for us that Seema come in completely independent of anything anyone's ever experienced of Carrie Bradshaw as this powerful entity all to herself. And over the course of this episode, they go from what Carrie was really looking for, fake friends, to real friends. And Mm -hmm. the idea of meeting somebody that you don't know, that it can be amnesia Mm -hmm. for the Mm -hmm. current state when she decides to sell her apartment and this amazing woman shows up, Nitsima Patel. And all of a sudden, Carrie deliberately on our part is back in Sex and the City. She's back before Big died. It's the only time in the show you see a Cosmo. Spoiler alert. The only time you see a Cosmo. In episode two, they're drinking hard-ass martinis. But Carrie's walking around a loft in Soho. And I kept saying, you know, when production starts being a problem, like, it's all so big. And I was like, no, no, no. Carrie is drawn to Seema because it's her past. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, look at the way Molly Rogers dressed her in the loft. It's Carrie. Even the bra is available to be seen in the back of her dress. Mm -hmm. And then they're having Cosmos and talking about dating apps, and it's all very 
here's what you thought you wanted. Mm. Yeah. Here's it, the show. Yeah. And it's like a vacation for Carrie. She's been grieving. And here's a stranger on a plane who's fabulous. And, and not- she can pretend, you know, she hasn't lost the love of her life with. And of course, because it's this group of friends, she's expressing this to uh, Miranda when she goes back to her house, which is another production outrageousness that we actually destroyed that gorgeous set. I remember telling John Melfi, so she comes back and everything's beige. He goes, what about the wallpaper? (laughs) What about the furniture? I said, it's all gone. Right. So we saved it till the end, and they literally destroyed the complicated. They had, Carrie and Big had cashmere wallpaper. (laughs) All of a sudden, there's just these slugs of beige, and that's when I realized, oh, without a designer, any room looks like a set. But Carrie goes back to that place, and she's talking to Miranda, and Miranda says, yeah, she didn't know Big. And that's why she's drawn to her. And she doesn't even think it's going to be a f- real friendship. She thinks it's a fling. Mm-hmm. No, I have to say, Seema's arrival is one of my favorite things we shot. It's just so fun, and it is, it's like what you said, it's a vacation, and it, yeah. it's just, it's TV. You know, when people mm-hmm. think of TV, her arrival is mm-hmm what you think of. It's fabulous. Down to the Mercedes with a driver. I mean, it's well, the most aspirational. Glamorous. You know? It's so aspirational and yeah. glamorous. And they told and us the, the original license plate was going to be SEMA. And legal said, you can't have SEMA. I was like, well, it has to be SEMA. <laughs> and then they said, here's an alternate, SEMA NYC. And I was like, thank you. Done. That's two stories so. in one. But the idea that SEMA comes in, and this is the most important thing about Seema to me is that she's strong, successful, powerful, beautiful, and single. And she is still searching. And the idea of a single woman still searching to me is reflective of all the powerful, strong, amazing, smart women I know that find themselves not with someone that reflects that back yet. And I think the other surprise at the end of this episode is Carrie being called out by Seema. So important because Mm -hmm. Carrie's always been somebody who looked out for the single girl. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly after being happily married, she's on the other side and she casually says something Mm -hmm. that wounds somebody who is single. friend, yeah. Well, and I love that for most of the episode, they're both on very good behavior. They're in that new, fresh blush of a friendship when you don't show your worst self. And the fact that it comes out with the broken frame. And I loved that Carrie lets herself be angry. She shows an angry side of herself that can be very off-putting. And that Seema, rather than shrink and just paper over it and get the hell out of there, fights back. Mm-hmm. And, and they're both formidable, and they both have a leg to stand on. So this episode is really about going deeper with all the new friends, all their different journeys sort of becoming more personal. And with the new friends joining us, we also lost one of our old friends, both figuratively and reality-wise. We lost Willie Garson, who played Stanford. This is the first episode that he is not in. And 
it was so tricky because aside from the fact that Sarah Jessica and all the cast are so close to him, we had to keep going. We had a 10-episode arc for Stanford. So what's left is how do you move forward? And I wrote a scene with Carrie and Stanford that took place in that apartment where he explained to her everything that was going on, and they smoked and had Cosmos. We had this funny story that Stanford, who was, he had a life crisis. Like, what am I doing? I don't have a career. I'm not managing anybody but a TikTok star. So I wrote this really heartfelt scene about going to Japan, and Carrie said, uh, life's too short. Go see the geishas for me, Stanny. And Willie called me up and said, I want, want, want to do it, but I can't. I can't physically do it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So we had to find some thing to put into the show. And I knew that everybody would know that Willie was gone. And I didn't want to make Stanford's death a joke or a drive-by comment. So the thing that we decided to do was just to put the thinnest piece of ice over it so that Carrie could skate over it and get on to the other thing, which is that he's in Japan. Because it is a rare example where I didn't want to go all in mm -hmm. because all in wasn't funny or cute. So Stanford comes, leaves a letter, which is our way of saying goodbye. But it was a big loss for the show and a big loss for us personally. It happened so fast, at least us finding out about it. And I remember you wrote that scene for Carrie and Stanford as, as just our last best hope of giving him a send-off. And then finding out he couldn't even come in to do that was and so... It was, he was going to shoot it in two mm. days' time. And I think what's incredible when you watch the series is the first three episodes, which were shot in the first six weeks of our production, uh, he's vibrant. He looks and his, his, he looks healthy. He's funny as ever. And it, it, it's still incomprehensible that he was as sick as he was. Yeah. And just like that, We've reached the end of this podcast episode. My undying thanks to Elisa, Julie, and Kelly for being here. We'll be back next week to unpack. And just like that, episode five. This is the official companion podcast for the HBO Max show, And Just Like That. And it's a production of HBO Max and Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers are Barry Finkel, Gabrielle Lewis, Max Zielinski, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our senior producer on the show is Emmanuel Hapsis. Jonathan Shiflett is our producer, and Janelle Anderson is our associate producer. Our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. Josh Gwynn is our story editor. And our engineers are Davey Sumner and Elliot Adler. Production music is courtesy of HBO Max. You can listen to the next episode of And Just Like That, the Writer's Room podcast after watching episode five of And Just Like That on HBO Max. And don't forget to subscribe for new conversations every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. 
Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.